Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. This is Xander, and today we're going to be talking about this Apple versus FBI case that's really been getting a lot of uh, attention recently in the last couple of weeks. Um, we're, we're first going to do a little aside, and Eric's going to describe the sort of considerate philosophy when discussing things that you might have some bias for, and then I'm going to announce some bias of my own before we get going. Yeah, and first, thanks everyone for all of your input. I know we've been asking people to let us know what they want us to talk about. Now, luckily, we were already planning on talking about this one, but we got just a whole boatload of people to reach out and say, hey, help me understand the Apple FBI thing. So we're really excited about this one specifically. So, you know, to all you guys that said something, thanks. Everyone else, you can reach out. Twitter, Facebook, email. Uh, we'll post some links in the podcast blog. Now, for those of you who have seen the blog it's hosted on something to consider movement.com. You may have poked around, you may have seen a little bit about the movement as a whole. And the, for those who haven't, the idea is that, um, what we are is this community of people who, you know, we don't disagree. We don't agree on stuff, uh, from a policy perspective necessarily, but what we agree on is ground rules for how to approach the topic, uh, with the aim of achieving, mutual understanding and learning from each other based sort of on the assumption that there are smart people that disagree with you. And what we want to do is find them and learn from each other because it's one important to be more correct and less wrong over time. And two, it's important to understand each other to be able to change our own minds and help change other people's minds, which is, you know, spoiler alert. That's actually how, that's how democracy works. Uh, you have to get people to agree with you. So we teach people the, you know, the art of changing minds, including their own. So one of the first things that really appealed to me about the Something to Consider movement forum was this one thread that's pinned to the top that asks, especially newcomers, to announce and discuss their own biases. And this is a really interesting concept to me because it is something that almost always comes up when you're discussing politics or policy with your friends or your colleagues or anyone else, it, it becomes obvious at some point how you lean and why you lean that way. And by forcing that conversation up front, it, it at least felt to me when I joined that you're approaching these discussions with a, a, you know, a touch of intellectual 
honesty that sometimes doesn't always arise in, in, in those conversations. So in that spirit, since we are discussing a topic today that really riles up some folks both on the privacy and uh, security side, and obviously it's more complex than that, but we'll call those sides out for now. Um, I need to announce some of my own biases before we get into the discussion because they could obviously color how I talk and think about this particular issue. So one of the defining moments in my political life or how I've been involved with politics was the Snowden leaks. I immediately after that became very involved in an organization called Restore the Fourth. I was one of the co-founders of the chapter in Los Angeles and I spent a good part of two years working, uh, spending a good amount of time doing community organizing and civic engagement for anti-mass surveillance issues. Now, this particular case isn't really necessarily a mass surveillance issue, and we'll get into why that's kind of a fine hair to cut. But obviously, since I have been so pro-privacy in the past, while we are going to try to discuss this issue in as objective a way as possible, it is only fair to you, the listener, if you know that I am approaching this issue with that perspective. And one of the things we sometimes do in the forum and elsewhere in the community is we try to make sure that for the sake of learning, someone takes, someone says, hey, if I were arguing for this, what would I, what would I say? And uh, I have a little bit less of an emotional investment in this one. And I decided that I would do some of my research from the perspective of, okay, what's the FBI's case? What's their, what's the sort of quote pro-security side of this? So I'll be bringing up a few of those as we go along. Um, and I, what I think is really cool about it, because we've obviously done just oodles of research already preparing for this, is I think both Xander and I have learned a lot and our perspectives have changed, uh, probably not flopped, but gone from black and white to, you know, pretty gray. And hopefully that you guys will get some of that. Hopefully you guys will benefit from that a bit as well. Yeah. If there's one thing that Eric and I have both walked away from our research doing is, is we walked away understanding that issues that are framed in sort of common discourse are sometimes far, far more complicated than a two to three minute segment allows for. And we really hope to get into some of that detail with you. And so just for just for a sense of how the public feels about it, uh, I did a little research and found that generally uh, most, the sorry, most, about 50% of the country when polled wants to wants to force Apple to help the FBI unlock the iPhone. So they side with the FBI, 38% stand against. So that's where people sit right now, but it is also the case that we know from all sorts of other research that public opinion is grossly underinformed. So a lot of people have probably just, you know, sort of started on whatever side of the issue that they would tend to before they knew the facts. And that's probably, that probably makes up most of that, most of that public opinion right now. Totally. And the last caveat I'll add is Eric and I have been doing our best to release these podcasts every two weeks with some degree of consistency. And it takes a little bit of time to prepare for these because as Eric mentioned, we do a good amount of research and we hope that some of the, the research we do and distilling that is, is useful to our listeners. This, this particular story has been developing very quickly and 
we'll do our best to include some of the most re- recent detail we found, but we're recording this on March 6th and we'll probably release it in a couple of days. And it's, it's possible that a couple of developments in the story might have missed, you know, our attention the last couple of days or the days to come. And we just want to be transparent about that as well. Yeah. And if we see anything really exciting, we'll just add it as a note on the blog site. So that's something to consider.com slash, or sorry, something to consider movement.com slash reconsider. So if you see some, if you're hungry for updates, you can go there uh, and find it. So you want to get this party started? Let's get right into it. So if you've been following this story, there was an attack made by this guy, uh, Farouk in San Bernardino, which is a town basically east of Los Angeles in Southern California. He killed, I think it was 14 people with yeah. some sort of assault rifle. Uh, assault weapon. This is a very, uh, man, I, I'm about to go on a tangent. Assault weapon, which is uh, not, not actually substantially different from a regular rifle. It is not fully automatic. Those are already illegal. But it was it's basically a rifle that looks scary. I apologize for my sloppiness now. I know that there are no legal ways to buy a weapon in the U.S. where you can hold the gun down and it just shoots bullets out. So uh, assault weapon. He killed, and, and maybe that distinction is, isn't even super important. This guy, Farouk, killed a lot of people. It was a terrible tragedy. He afterwards identified and, and essentially with being involved somehow with ISIS, that that connection has not been firmly established, whether you know he received any directives or he was acting as an independent cell. But um, a lot of people were killed in a terrorist attack. And the FBI got a hold of this guy's phone. It was an iPhone 5C. And they said, well, <clears throat> we have a warrant now. We want to be able to find out what's on this phone so we can find out more information about this guy and what drove him, uh, what motives he had, what contacts he may have had uh, that, that enabled this attack. The problem is... Apple has created software that is essentially unbreakable, even for it, it itself. So Apple cannot break in right now to these types of phones. And it created this software purposefully over the course of the last two years after the Snowden leaks because you know there was some concern in industry that these tech companies could not be trusted or, or, or whatever. And Apple was afraid, of, as well as some other tech, tech companies, of losing some business. And they thought that the best way to do this was to create software that even they couldn't break into. And that'd kind of be one surefire way of saying, hey, look, no, really, your, your data is safe. So they created an operating system that they couldn't even break into. And there, there's, there's a couple of aspects to the technology that need to be understood to really understand what the FBI is even asking of Apple. Because the FBI has gone to Apple and said, you know, there is the software that you created we can't get into it, so help us get into it. So the iPhone 5C has, for starters, this security feature where if you enter a fake password or an incorrect password, rather, 10 times, the iPhone can, if this functionality is turned on, delete all the data on the phone. Technically, the data isn't deleted, but the secure key that decrypts the data on the phone becomes deleted. So all the data is there. It's just in scram, unscram- it's scrambled and you can never unscramble it. So that's one security aspect of the phone. 10 attempts, information gone. The other is if there is this secure enclave feature turned on, 
which is just what it's called on the iPhone, then the more times you attempt to enter your password on the iPhone, the, the longer the delay between password attempts. So the first time it might be a second, the next could be 10 seconds, then 30 seconds, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes. I don't know the exact numbers, but you have to wait longer for each attempt. And lastly, even if this is disabled, this secure enclave feature that spreads out the amount of time you can enter passwords, there is still an 80 millisecond delay enforced on, I, th I think it's the operating system, but it might be the hardware, but there, there is an 80 millisecond delay on the iPhone that prevents people from entering more than one, one password every 80 milliseconds. That seems like a small amount of time, but you, you can imagine if there's some sort of script being run that can try, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of passwords every second, limiting it to 12 attempts per second actually reduces the FBI's ability to, you know, just try tens of millions of passwords really, really quickly to break into the phone. And that's essentially what they're trying to do. They're not asking Apple to completely, you know, give them, break the, the, operating system somehow well i guess you could say they are trying to break the operating system but the fbi but they just want to get past that yeah the fbi wants the ability to try tons and tons and tons of passwords really quickly and they can't right now at least not with any surety that they'd ever be able to do it within you know 10 years or without losing all the information right because there's this and we don't know for certain that the guy has set up the melt the you know melt the data if you screwed up 10 times feature uh, you can't know until you've unlocked the phone. And uh, so we're, you know, we're assuming right now Farouk has used it because the FBI doesn't want to just take that chance and there's just no way they're going to guess it with intent. So it's just not happening. Um, and, and what's at stake here is that the FBI does already have some stuff from Farouk's iCloud backup, uh, which was handed over with the warrant. But he stopped the last iCloud backup he had was a month before the attack. And so the thought is that, hey, there's a good chance or there's a decent chance that Farouk has made phone calls or texts or pictures or whatever to other people in that last month setting up the attack. And these people would still be at large. They could still perform other attacks. Time may be of the essence, right? They may be planning something else. And the FBI wants to stop them before they can do something once they have the evidence to go after them. And so from the FBI's perspective here, time is of the essence and and like real people's lives might be at risk. So that's the case they're making. And Apple has unlocked some phones in the past. There's a whole stack of phones, like a dozen or something, that are sitting behind this new security feature that the FBI has that Apple hasn't unlocked. And, but this time, what's different this time is that instead of, you know, just handing the phone over and being like, hey, can you plug in your magical thing and unlock it? Apple can't do that because it wrote, it wrote the, uh, the software to not be able to do that. But there's like one catch. And the one catch is that, okay, Apple could rewrite an operating system that is broken or corrupted such that it does not have this feature and then, so it would rewrite the operating system on this iPhone and then hand it back to the FBI. And then the FBI would be able to break it or break in. And the FBI isn't asking Apple to roll it out, right? So it's not saying, hey, you have to make 
you have to get rid of this feature as a design on future iPhones, but we do want you to rewrite this one and probably those 12 other ones. Give it back to us so that we can break in. The immediate thought is, I, I could imagine, for a lot of people would be, who cares? This guy was a terrible guy. He murdered a lot of innocent people. Why should we care about Apple helping the FBI break into his phone? And the issue with these tech security, or the problem with these tech security issues is that it's never quite that simple, as we'll, we'll get into in greater detail. Because if you weaken the security protocol for one device or one system that a really bad person uses, then you're still weakening that security protocol for everyone else who uses it that is doing nothing wrong. The problem is not just that you're an average user, some of your information might be viewable by the government. And I've heard time and time again, if you're not doing anything wrong, what do you have to fear? The problem is if you weaken security protocols that also protect you and normal consumers from other bad guys, then you can make the argument that collective security for everyone on that piece of software or, or system decreases. And just some examples that have come up repeatedly with this particular issue are folks who store any sort of financial information or health information uh, on their iPhones that, you know, if it gets into a bad actor, whether it's state or non-state, can uh, that, that weakened protocol can be used by someone who's not so good to get good people's information. Or blackmailing people of, you know, of questionable, of questionable virtue of which there are, I'm sure, many out there where you could get texts where they're cheating on their spouses and all sorts of other junk. Could be chaos. I mean, and the, the FBI's kind of counter case here is that, hey, look, we don't want this rolled out. We just want, we want this special operating system thing only in our hands. We're going like, to keep it in a box and we'll use it when we need to. Thanks, Apple. We'll be the only ones that have it, but there are, so it, you know, it wouldn't automatically get rolled out. Could it get leaked? Could other governments demand it? We'll get into that because uh, the precedent is, it's, it is potentially wide, but very murky. And what I think is one of the most interesting things about this case is that Apple could look at this and say, oh God, well, if we're really concerned about the broad reaching implications of this next time for the next rollout, we could create a operating system that even we can't write over, or at least, sorry, we can change the security feature to not be in the operating system, but instead be on read-only memory, which means you can't rewrite it. Uh, so they could put it in that ROM memory. And, the, and if they did that, they would say, look, it's literally impossible for us to break it. Just can't do it. Sorry, too bad. Although if this case goes the FBI's way, would they be in contempt if they did that in the future? Like, would this stop them from being able to do that? We don't know. But so what's what's so interesting about this and the reason you've probably heard about it, the reason everyone's writing about it, the reason you should care is that this could be a landmark case right. with broad precedent going forward. A lot of places are covering this issue from the perspective of the FBI is asking Apple for a backdoor. Backdoors are bad because they weaken systems. Therefore, what the FBI is asking of Apple is too much and they should back off. A lot of people who are on the FBI side in this uh, particular issue are saying it's not a backdoor. The FBI is just asking Apple to create a way for them to try a bunch of different types of codes. So which is it, Xander? Ah, and, and here is what we found. 
in researching this issue. It's not so simple. And I don't really know. Because- ah, come on. <laughs> what good are we? <laughs> yeah. Is, is this a backdoor? I don't know. And we don't really know because the cybersecurity experts that we went to uh, when we were doing our research and we didn't talk to them, but we, we read what they were writing are saying really different things. And these are people whose full-time jobs as technologists are to do cybersecurity research. So one guy, James Lewis, at who's a cybersecurity expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, says it's not a backdoor. And he said in a piece that he wrote that, quote, use of the term backdoor is both pejorative and misleading. A backdoor is a flaw or access point intentionally introduced into software to allow access to unencrypted text. To argue against backdoors is a sham in this case, since what law enforcement agencies want is access to the plain text when this is authorized by law, meaning the FBI already has a warrant. So that seems fairly definitive, right? The problem is when you go read Bruce Shire, who is also a security technologist and the CTO of Resilient Systems, and who writes a lot about privacy in the digital age, said it is a backdoor. He said, quote, the hacked software the court and the FBI wants Apple to provide would be general. It would work on any phone of the same model. It has to. Make no mistake, this is what a backdoor looks like. This is an existing vulnerability in in iPhone security that could be exploited by anyone. The implication being that it could be not just the FBI who uses this backdoor or weakened security protocol. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, this is one of the things I write a lot about on the blog is semantics and how, you know, they are, we try to use single words that simplify something to make it easy. Be like, oh, backdoor's bad. Okay, this is a backdoor, therefore bad. And it's just... At this point, this is a good example of where it's unhelpful, where you go, okay, you know, call just calling it a backdoor or not a backdoor is not helpful for us because it doesn't inform us as to what's really going on. And we have to make a decision on a more complicated thing rather than just on a one-word label. So now that we don't know if this is a backdoor or not, <laughs> but we at least have... There's going to be a lot of that in this episode. Now that we don't know what we thought we knew. <laughs> now that everything that was clear to us before is now confusing and gray... But at least we have some understanding of how this issue is being discussed out there by different parties. What, let's get into how the FBI is using legal precedents to ask Apple to create this corrupted operating system in the first place. And it's really pretty fascinating because the FBI is – they already have a warrant, right? We established that. So they have the right to the information, but it's not Apple's information. And Apple doesn't have Farouk – Farouk's info on their servers to turn over. Right. They already turned over the iCloud stuff. Right. So the FBI is is asking, is is using this really, really old law called Really old. Really old. It's called the All Ricks All Ritz Act. The All Ritz Act of seventeen eighty nine. It <laughs> Yes, seventeen eighty nine. So like George Washington. This literally, this law was signed in by George Washington. It was adopted by the very first session of the very first Congress in the United States. <laughs> so it's it's basically the first law ever. Yeah, or near it. yeah, really. That's insane. So what does this law do, and why is the FBI pulling this 
older than 200 year old precedent into it to try to feel so bad for their like paralegals and interns. (laughs) It's like, I need you to go through literally every law back to 1789. Find sub, just go, go figure it out. That, that'd, be a, that'd be a rough job, huh? Yeah. Um, but what what the All Writs Act does is it gives federal judges the power to issue orders to compel people or enti- entities to do things that are within the limits of the law. And if that sounds really vague to you, that's because it's extraordinarily vague. It's basically saying that if the courts issue some sort of order, then they also have the ability to direct people who are related to that order to do things that ensure that that order gets carried out. What, what does that even mean? Uh, I mean, so I'm not a lawyer, but the, that sounds a lot to me like it's authorizing the court to compel someone to do literally anything. Okay, great. Cool. Okay. So we now have a precedent that says we have a law from George Washington that says the court can make you do anything it wants if it helps with the case. Cool. Yeah, and the thing is, the All Writs Act was – it, it was basically a part of this larger act called the Judiciary Act that was passed in 1789. And the reason that it was the first act passed by the first Congress in the first session is because the Judiciary Act of 1789 established the federal justice system. This act established all the courts in the U.S., from all the way up to the Supreme Court down to like local federal courts – So the FBI is taking one part of this act that established essentially the third branch of our government and saying, okay, we're using this to direct Apple to create this operating system for us. So what is a writ, right? It's called the All Writs Act, and writ is spelled W-R-I-T. So it's kind of an old word. A writ is just an old-fashioned way of saying court order, essentially. And writs used to be more common but they are now only used, and I'm taking this language from a Smithsonian Magazine report on it, uh, that writs are only really used now in, quote, extraordinary situations where there are no other laws that apply to the situation at hand. And in this case, the argument that the FBI is saying is it is an extraordinary situation, and there are no other laws that apply to compelling a technology company to create corrupted software in order to comply with a court order, Therefore, the All Writs Act applies. Right. So we decided then to go find a law that was written before technology. A a (laughs) long time before technology. (laughs) Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah, I mean, this is is what? 190 years before... No, not 190, but 90 years before the telephone was invented. Yeah, and one of... We're going to talk about this at some point, but one of the more recent precedents that used the All Writs Act in sort of a, a landmark case was in 1977, right? So e- even even the recent uses of this case that can be referred to as precedents are still well before the internet became ubiquitous. But it was post-telephone. It was post-telephone. Well, and ARPANET existed in 1970, right? What is ARPANET, Eric? Oh, sorry. Uh, it's, gosh, uh... I forget what ARPA stands for, but it's essentially it's the predecessor to DARPA. So it was a, essentially the first internet, and it was uh, the government funded hooking some computers up via some cables and getting people to chat with each other, and you know probably send pictures of cats. And that was the beginning of the it, the internet spawned from that. 
So if your computer ever thinks it's January 1, 1970, it's because its clock has gone down to zero, and zero day is January 1, 1970, because that's when ARPANET was around. Interesting. Now you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this while ARPANET existed in this 1977 case, um, well, well, it did exist when this 1977 case was was ruled on, and one of the sort of follow up precedences that relates to the All Writs Act that came out of this 1977 Act was that uh, third party compliance, as it relates to the All Writs Act, can only apply if there is no quote unreasonable burden and that unreasonable burden to the third party compliance language comes from this 1970s era court precedence and uh, apple is uh, part of their argument is that complying with the fbi's request in this case would in fact be an unreasonable burden because it would require them to have this uh, massive investment in compliance that you know, even much more than they currently have. And they'd have to have a staff on hand for creating corrupted versions of operating systems whenever this sort of a request could come through in the future on any version of its operating system. Right. Okay. And so this is where we're getting to the the interesting precedent part, I guess, because we're saying, you know, in the past it was, hey, give us this information you have. This is a court order. And it's like, okay, fine. Here you go. And now, I guess for the, is it, maybe it's the first time probably that the court is demanding that Apple write new code in order to, so one, they're writing new code and two, they're changing the iPhone itself that they have here rather than just cracking it open. Um, and you need a different legal precedent for that than you just your normal warrant. And I wonder, you know, what would happen if, like, if Apple said, if Apple had already made the security features on read-only memory or in the firmware, would it be, you know, if they said, hey, it's literally impossible, would this be a violation of the All Writs Act? Would they be in contempt? Would they be forced to go back and change it next time, you know, for next time to make it accessible? You know, I guess this is all stuff that, this poor judge, whoever he is, I mean, he's either very excited or very frightened or both that's in charge of this case. Uh, cause it's an appeal right now. Cause they've already got the order and Apple is appealing it. And they're saying, no, 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 we don't want this. So, you know, this guy has to, I guess, figure all this stuff out. And, and surely he knows that all this precedent is coming. It could change everything. Right. And a lot of folks out there are saying that, you know, the, the reason the FBI is bringing up, this issue now and using the All Writs Act is is not only because they want to get into this guy Farouk's phone, even though that's certainly part of it, but it's that their approach using the All Writs Act is part of a longer term strategy to establish precedents for themselves so that they have more tools available for them if they need to break in and get this sorts of information in the future. So while this has been framed by many as a, quote, backdoor versus, quote, privacy issue, it, it may really be more of a precedent strategy for the FBI. I mean, think about it. It's, it's a pretty politically convenient case. I mean, it was an act of terrorism. No one's going to be sympathetic and no one should be sympathetic to the guy who, who did these terrible things. 
it's easy for the FBI to make the argument in this case that, look, we need a speedy resolution. There could have been other people working with Farouk. We need these powers now. The, the issue, of course, is that when you rush to set precedents in you know, these periods of... Uh, Seeming crisis. Exactly. You, you run the risk of setting precedences that, in fact, are too far-reaching and that were not fully thought through when they were passed and can be used in the future in ways that no one thought they were going to be used uh, when they were passed, like the Patriot Act, uh, just as one example. Yeah, and I guess to, on the FBI side here, they aren't asking for the world. And now you could say that this is clever and that they're not asking for the world because if they asked for the world, they wouldn't get it. They're, this may be a bit-by-bit strategy. But it's also worth noting that what they're asking for is something that, as far as I can understand it as not a lawyer, would only apply in cases where there's already a court order for the information. And so it's not, for example, commanding Apple to change, you know, OS 10.3 or whatever, you know, that the next rollout has to have all breakable phones. It's just saying that, hey, give us a version that we'll keep in our box and we'll pull it out when we have a court order to get into stuff. And, uh, you know, for for all of the all of the question marks on mass surveillance and stuff aside, this isn't a mass surveillance thing. It's not a spying on uh, it's not a spying on citizens thing. It is a hey, give us a tool to get into the thing we have a legal right to get into. And so I guess it's it's sort of like the FBI's case here could be hey, you're objecting to Apple building us a battering ram for this door, and the tool isn't the point. The point is the the legal process of getting access to this information. Because with, with doors and houses and such, there's no magic way to not get it. I mean, they have battering rams. You know, if they can't pick the lock, they you know, just bust right in. And having battering rams is a danger to a society that does not have a legal process, a due process for collecting that information. But, the, you know, the FBI may make the case here that, look, the tool is not the thing that we should be worried about. As far as privacy goes, we should be worried about, is there a legal process in place for us to use those tools to get that information? And I think that's I think that's their case is we're only going to use this when we're allowed to. We only can use this when we're allowed to. We don't even have the power to go after everyone's phone at once. We have to get that phone from a court order in our hot little hands and then plug it into the box. Yeah, and this is this is the part of the show where we're we're going to get into a little friendly back and forth because the concept of a battering ram, honestly, to me is is a pretty compelling metaphor, right? It's a technology that exists that can really only exist to break into people's private spaces, and you know we already use that. Uh, the the issue that I took with this concept is that in the digital realm the battering ram is, it's not a perfect metaphor. It doesn't carry over exactly. And when we talk about precedent, there's really two ways to look at it. One of which is using precedents in secret, which the, the U.S. government has a history of doing. And then the danger of other governments using precedent, if not strictly legal, but precedent set in the U.S. and applying it to their own country. So like China, for example. Now, the first one, this danger of precedents plus the use of those precedents in secrecy. I'm going to refer again to the Patriot Act. There's a section called Section 215 that enabled a lot of the 
NSA programs that were leaked by Snowden, one of which was PRISM. And the guy who passed and actually wrote the Patriot Act really was kind of shocked when he found out years later how it was being used. And the reason that it had gotten so far was because there is this parallel court system called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA, where there are no sides. It's not like defense and prosecution. It is only the U.S. government uh, making their case in front of a FISA court judge, and it's all in secret. None of this is available to the public, and it was in these secret courts where the Patriot Act, and specifically Section 215, was used to set a lot of precedents that just led to really, in my opinion, incredible creep over the years, and ended up using the Patriot Act in ways that it was never even initially meant to be read. And I'm just going to pull one quote from a Time article I read that I, I think summarizes this precedent secrecy issue pretty well. Quote, everything we know suggests that government lawyers are likely to argue for an expansive reading of that obligation and may have already done so. That fight, however, will unfold in secret through classified arguments before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. The precedent set in the public fight may help determine how ambitious the government can be in seeking secret court orders that would require companies to produce hacking or surveillance tools meant to compromise their devices and applications. Yeah, so I guess one of the things we get out of Apple taking this to appeals is no matter what the no matter what the ruling is, it is at least public. And it could be the case that maybe it moves in a private court if the FBI gets its way. But Apple has set it up such that this fight will be fought in a public court. The proceedings will be public. The precedent will be public and can be used by other judges. And, you know, maybe most importantly, legislature will have access to it so that hopefully Congress can pass a law that is older that or that is you know less than 270 60 years old mm-hmm. uh, to deal with this so that's that's one danger with the issue of precedence in this particular case the other as i mentioned a minute ago is this risk of setting international precedence and what do i mean by that well obviously u.s law doesn't apply in say china and i'll keep using this example of china because we've been having cybersecurity spats with them over the last couple of years anyways but, yeah, and they and they love spying on their people. Yeah, it's their thing. It's an authoritarian. Uh, I, I don't. I don't even know what you call their system of governance anymore. But it is authoritarian. <laughs> I don't even know what you call it either. It's not quite a dictatorship. It's like I don't know. It's some sort of. I mean, it's a one party. It's a one party oligarchy. The risk is while our laws don't apply there, countries like China use international examples, if not for legal precedent, then at least for political precedent. And if we pass uh, or if we set precedents here that essentially enables security and intelligence agencies to say, hey, big multinational company, we now have the right to compel you to write corrupted code in order to enable us access to this information that we didn't have before, you better bet China is going to be able to point to the U.S. and say, well, hey, you guys did it. You can't come after us now if we do the same thing. And now all of a sudden, instead of the U.S. leading from the front as sort of leading from the front in terms of a representative of a free society, 
we're now going to have repressive regimes pointing to us and saying, well, hey, if you can do it, we can do it too. Yeah, I think the counter argument to that is that, again, since this is a tool, to some extent, the horse is already out of the barn in that China knows that. I mean, even if the U.S. says, no, you can't, by our laws, China goes, well, Apple able to do it. So by our laws, they totally can. And this is, you know, one of the things about China specifically is they have really creative ways of using precedent. Like with the South China Sea, they said, well, the United States used Manifest Destiny to, you know, to genocide the Native Americans and drive out West. So you can't, you can't say anything bad to us about this. You can't be mad. And you kind of get, you, know, you roll your eyes, you go, oh, guys, come on. And, you know, I, I think that using a tool in due process is it, it certainly does not morally justify using the tool without due process. Again, like a battering ram, you know, trying to start battering ramming everyone and said, well, America uses battering rams. It's like, yeah, but we only, come on, man. We only use it with warrants when we can't pick. This is totally different. And China is likely to go, nope, oh, nope, totally the same. <laughs> and a lot of that's for domestic PR purposes, right? It's how they kind of control public opinion is by, and they've created this, this like, siege mentality where the West is so unfair and they have double standards, wine, wine, wine. Um, so I don't know. I, I agree that if we, you know, if we went ahead and did this, China would find some way to twist it such that they can demand that tool to be used to, you know, to, when they quote subpoena, you know, like the Dalai Lama's phone or some activist or, or press person. Um, but I'm just also not sure that us us not using that tool is going to prevent them from doing the same. And that's a fair point. Side note, we should do a show on the South China Sea. Yep. Yep. Interesting place. Lots of little rocks. Not a whole lot of stuff there. And yet one of the most interesting places in the world right now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I'm going to read one more quote here about the international precedence aspect of this case. And it is from Human Rights Watch, so you can understand the perspective they're taking on it. Quote, even if the software, referring to the corrupted software that the FBI wants Apple to write, is used only once, it creates the precedent that any government, even highly repressive ones, can force digital tech companies to create a backdoor to their products. With Apple's expansion strategy focused largely outside the U.S., especially in China, this case comes at a dangerous time. 
It is no wonder that Apple released an open letter stating it will oppose this order as a threat to the security of all its users. Yeah, the tough part about precedent is that in a purely rational system, this would probably this could probably have somewhat limited precedent. The problem is that politics gets involved, right? So you could say, hey, look, building this tool, this corrupted software to be stored in a box, you could say, great, that's what we'll, we'll have forms of this corrupted software to sit on a USB stick in a box and be used for court orders. Great. Not a big deal, right? And it doesn't have to go further. I guess the problem with politics and where this gets complicated is that it often does go further because what we do is we start saying, well, we did this and look at this law from 1789 that we can use to show that this is greatly expensive in this case. And that's the hard part that I don't have a good answer to. So I think that were this a legislature that had some limited set of laws to draw upon that we all knew what they were because we can't read them all and didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to know the entire set of court precedent from the past and stuff like that. I could say confidently, this feels very limited to me, but the X factor, as we can see from pulling up the All Writs Act, is that there's just stuff in the past that I don't know that someone could say, aha, see, you let us do this this time. And according to such and such law, that means we can do it all the time. And someone starts waxing their mustache at that point and cackling. <laughs> And we, you know, and it's all over. And I can't say that that's not going to happen. And that's one of the really tough parts about this. <laughs> I, I have an image of an evil uh, robber baron now uh, gra- grabbing yes, his mustache yes. and turning the crank on a train that's careening yes. through- <laughs> towards an iPhone that's strapped to the <laughs> that's strapped to the tracks, and a very handsome Tim Cook in chaps and a cowboy hat is running towards. <laughs> the tracks to try to save the iPhone right now. Please, please, will some political cartoonist get on this? I mean, my God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So um, I'm going to refocus because I, if I keep having that image in my head, I'm not going to be able to start laughing for the next hour. What, why does Apple need to do this, right? Why, why does Apple of all entities need to create this OS and not someone else? And this is a question that, has come up a lot of times when I've been ha- having discussions with folks who are curious about this issue. Now, as I understand it, or as at least I understood it initially, a- Apple software needs to be signed with one of their proprietary keys. And that just means that they have this digital key that when they create a piece of software, it, they basically, it's like putting a key in a lock and saying, okay, this is really Apple, and now it's locked and it's us and the software works basically, in a really high-level, not-technical sense. So the concept is that it needs to be Apple because if this operating system, this corrupted operating system that is created for the FBI is not signed by Apple uh, with Apple's key, then it doesn't work, and it won't work on any of the iPhones. However, I have, in the course of researching this episode, had conversations with uh, people who are actually close to this story, people who in the digital privacy world in the Silicon Valley tech world who've said that, you know, if the FBI threw enough money at this, they could find a way to break in. And it's not just the FBI. If there were enough money and resources and intelligence to be had, you don't really need Apple's key. There's usually a way to hack almost anything. So as we mentioned above, this might 
be indicative of, well, two things. One, the FBI just lacks resources, or two, the strategy here for the FBI may very well be to use this particular terrorism case to set precedence. Because it's a lot harder to say, you know, no, you shouldn't provide access to that this guy's phone if this guy is a terrorist. And sounds like if we have this argument here that there are some of these cases where time is of the essence and the FBI could throw months and millions at it or just say, bust out the USB stick, let's go. You know, it would save them a lot of time and be able to, yeah, they'd be able to make something happen immediately in these cases where they feel like they're in a rush. So, yeah, and that sounds, if I were them, I would probably want that precedent as well. It certainly sounds convenient. Yeah, and this this the sentiment expressed me uh, personally, I guess, in my, uh, I guess, primary research for this episode is somewhat backed up by the security expert, Bruce Shire, that I mentioned a little earlier before, who in an article that we'll link to, seems to think that it is entirely possible to write some sort of hacked or corrupted operating system and that the FBI just doesn't have the manpower to do so. Bruce Shire is blaming budget and manpower issues. Yeah, and I guess if they could get into it on their own already, in theory, in this case, maybe Apple makes the case that, hey, look, we don't have to do it so they can try to avoid setting that precedent. And... It also makes it sort of a less of a binary thing and more of just a matter of where does the time and burden lay in this particular case. But again, the precedent going forward of, hey, we can compel companies in general to do this stuff for us does start changing the political calculus for these technology companies as they make stuff. Right. And how does that affect their business operations and how they need to approach new markets and what resources and capital they need to set aside for allowing for these sorts of interventions. Okay, so that's the FBI's seeming plan, either dastardly or not. And uh, Apple's filed an appeal, and they've, you know, they dropped their big fat stack of paper with a whole lot of arguments about why they're totally not going to do this. Xander, you've done more research into this. Yeah, Apple is making two constitutional claims in their appeal. And they're using both the First and Fifth Amendment. The, the First Amendment argue, argument basically goes like this. They reference a 1999 case, uh, Bernstein versus U.S. Department of Justice, where one of the precedents that was set was that code, computer code, like programming code, is actually a form of speech. So if the First Amendment is right to free speech and code is speech, therefore FBI compelling Apple to create this corrupted operating system is essentially compelling Apple to engage in speech, especially for the government that it does not want to engage in and is therefore a violation of its First Amendment rights. The Fifth Amendment argument then is that that Apple is making is that the FBI is compelling Apple to basically engage in activities that are denying them the right to be free from, quote, arbitrary, uh, arbitrary deprivation of their liberties. And if I were the FBI here, I'd say the code thing smells like BS because it's, I mean, I don't know what the precedent from 99 was, but it's, it would feel to me where I, the FBI, more like I was asking them to create a thing rather than speech. 
in particular since that speech is not going to be broadcast, right? They're not saying anything to the world. They're not stating an opinion. They're writing, a, you know, they're writing a, a tool like a lockpick or something. But, uh, oh, it turns out I did do some research. Apple has two other big arguments. One of them is that when they refer to the All Writs Act, they are saying that, no, 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 it doesn't count for us, because they're actually going back to that 77 Supreme Court case about it called U.S. versus New York Telephone Company, in which All Writs Act was applied. And they're saying that the Supreme Court there said that the only case that you can do this is that if the burden is not if the burden is meager and they're saying, no, in this case it is quite oppressive and the FBI is coming back and saying, no, 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 you just have to give us the same operating system, but you just have to delete some stuff. It's like not a big deal. And I don't know the code well enough to be able to argue whether that's true or not. They're also referring to a 1994 law. So this is now post-internet called CALEA, C-A-L-E-A. And I forget what it stands for, but the, a subchapter of this law says clearly that it specifically does not authorize the government to demand a technology maker roll out a specific design. And you might say, ah, well, this is watertight. But the problem here is that the FBI is claiming that it's not actually a design change because they're not demanding that it be rolled out in general to phones, right? So it's not designed because it's not for a product. It is something that they would just hand over to the FBI. And so I don't know what the right interpretation of that or the legal, the most legally defensible interpretation of that would be. But they're claiming this is a design. And the FBI is, of course, claiming, no, 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 it's not a design. It's just a tool that you're building us that isn't going to go into phones in general. Yeah, I mean, this this Kalea precedent. It's just a wonderful example to me of the complexity of this issue, how this tiny definition of rollout or specific design can can be what this case hinges on as an example. Right. So you might say that since this is not a design that's being rolled out, since it is a one-time tool, or not a one-time tool, but it is a tool that's going to be in the hands of the FBI on a stick, that it doesn't have huge mass surveillance implications in the way that a whole other a lot of other stuff like the Patriot Act and PRISM, which is an NSA metadata collection program, has. So it's it's not as far reaching as that. So you can make the case that this is in a way not that big a deal. Yeah, and I think one of the questions that get gets asked with this specific case is why do they even, they being the FBI, why does the FBI even need this information? I mean, there are all these tools that we now know about that the NSA has for mass surveillance capabilities, and the NSA collaborates with other intelligence agencies like the FBI, like the DEA. Why do they even need access to this phone in this way? Can't they already get that information? And this is another example of me kind of having to say, I just don't know. I I went and, and interviewed a few folks in this field, and the feedback that I got was they don't really know. Maybe the NSA can get some of this information. Maybe they can't. There are some programs that we know about, like PRISM, that are just metadata, but there are a lot of other leaks that indicate that the NSA may have ability to collect and search through contents of calls and other information, certainly internationally and uh, while the technology exists, they may or may not have the secret legal precedence to do so domestically. But 
the answer is just, I don't really know. And a lot of other folks don't really know either. And, and maybe I just didn't talk to the right people, but that kind of remains one of the murky aspects of this case. So we, we, we try to, as I mentioned a little while ago, we try to keep these podcasts on these two week cycles. Since we started working on this, one development came up that was really pretty fascinating to watch unfold. And it's, it's almost certainly going to play into how this appeal develops as it goes forward. And this has to do with a ruling that occurred uh, about a week ago in New York State, actually. And the FBI versus Apple case is taking place in the state of California. So that's important to keep in mind. So there's this judge, and his name uh, is pretty badass, actually. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Judge Orstein, which sounds like something out of Judge Dredd or Terminator to me, like this futuristic law bringer who also has a giant gun. but it, And a giant chin. <laughs> have you seen the new Dredd? I have, just read. I have not. It, is that worth checking out? It's so good. Everyone who wants a good action movie about a terrible future dystopia where the government has way too much power and crime is rampant and, oh, got, yeah, got to see it. So we'll, we'll create a sequel to this movie called Judge Orstein. Judge Orstein, <laughs> I am the law. <laughs> this guy, Judge Orstein, is a magistrate judge and he's in New York State. And he was responsible for ruling on another case brought by an intelligence agency. It was I, – I, I'm not entirely clear if it was brought by the DEA or the FBI, but uh, in this case, the iPhone in question was seized by the DEA. So it's possible that both intelligence agencies are involved on in this case. For our non-American listeners or for those who, who haven't studied their alphabet soup, uh, the DEA is the Drug Enforcement Agency. Right. So it makes sense then that the case in New York State was about drugs and not terrorism. It was, I, I think, a suspected drug dealer or something like that. And the the key question raised in in this case was whether the All Writs Act, and, and again, the intelligence agencies were using All Writs Act as a way to compel Apple to essentially create similar code, except it was for a drug case in another state. So the, the key question was whether the All Writs Act allows a court to compel Apple, a private party with no alleged involvement in this individual's criminal activity to perform work for the government against his will. And the court ruled, and Judge Orstein ruled that the All Writs Act does not imply that the federal government can compel Apple this way. And a quote from his ruling reads as follows, quote, The implications of the government's position are so far-reaching, both in terms of what it would allow today and what implies about congressional intent in 1789 as to produce uh, impermissibly absurd results. Damn. Yeah. Judge Orstein laying down the law. <laughs> With SAT words that take me a second try to pronounce. So Orstein's ruling was uh, particularly harsh because it recognized that the FBI's intent was at least in part to attempt to set precedent, which is this issue that's recurring in the Apple case. Orstein argued that the power that such a precedent would give uh, would would give to law enforcement agencies, would essentially endow them with this power that 
statutory authority that Congress itself never enacted. So essentially it would be endowing to intelligence agencies uh, a power that Congress never meant to give them. So another quote from his ruling reads as follows. It is thus clear that the government is relying on the All Writs Act as a source of authority that is legislative in every meaningful way, something that can be cited as a basis for getting the relief it seeks in case after case without any need for adjudication of the particular circumstances of an individual case. Sounds like we have a lawyer that agrees with me on the authorizes you to do anything version of that interpretation of that text. I think it's very similar to that. It's it's that the way the government is interpreting the All Writs Act is so broad that they can compel basically anyone to do anything that's related to a court order. But Orstein also brings up this issue of uh, undue burden that was a language derived in the 1977 case that we mentioned a little while ago. Um, And he talks about the financial burden that would be placed on Apple, not just in this one case, but on an ongoing basis, and that this financial burden would likely be significant. And he says that, quote, the record of this case makes clear that the burdens the government seeks to impose on Apple under the authority of the All Writs Act are not nearly so limited. To the contrary, it clearly intends to continue, it being the government, to continue seeking assistance that is similarly burdensome, if not far more so for the foreseeable future. So that's that's wrapped up. I mean, that that just short circuits this entire thing, right? Uh, well, Done. Precedent set. It would certainly be less gray if that were the case. Of course... Uh, as with lots of other issues that we seem to come across in researching this particular issue, it's it's not that easy, right? Ah, oh, come on. Right? Uh, Orstein is not a U.S. district judge, and instead he's a magistrate judge. And the, the, so that what, means he has to wear the big pompadour wig, right? <laughs> Could you imagine how much more interesting court proceedings would be if they had to wear those like 18th century wigs? Yeah. Maybe we could get like a C-SPAN for courts going on. Anyways, the, the point of this uh, magistrate judge, regardless of whether he actually has to wear that wig, is his rulings are not binding to other courts and a ah. ruling in New York State not binding precedent to uh, cases in California, which is where the Apple case is going on. Useless. Right? Uh, not quite. Okay, so do we know when this – when the – the California case begins. I guess it's begun already, but when the arguments begin, all I know is Apple has filed its appeal. Uh, that's yeah. that's that's what I got right now. It's developing. Gotcha. Okay, so that's that's the ground situation right now. It's hairy. It's nasty. It's complicated. It has potential far-reaching precedent that we don't even know what it could be. Orstein seems to have a good idea, though. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you know. Typically, I I keep wanting to break this down into some sort of simple analogy, like oh, it's like this, and it, so I've been thinking about you know, so this is a back door that the FBI wants, and the answer's maybe, and I've been thinking you know it's I've been th- calling it a tool, so I've been thinking of it as like a lock pick or a or a battering ram. What do you think? Is that, Xander, is that a good analogy? 
it's hard to use analogies in this case, and that's something that keeps coming to my mind because you can Ugh. you can use battering ram or lockpick, but like just take lockpick for example. Let's say you have a safe safe with a lock, and you say, well, the FBI is just asking Apple to create a new key for it. Well, that's not exactly it, right? It, because the FBI is asking for a new way to break into that. So it's like the FBI would be asking Apple to create a new type of lock that could somehow be reinserted into the safe that the FBI could then go and create their own key for. Mm. So it, it kind of breaks yeah. down with these physical analogies. All right, fine. Okay, so officially we have no good model or analogy for this. The, the point is that in this particular example, a lot of these arguments by analogy break down when you draw them out in extremis. Okay, fine. Yeah. So, okay, so we have a, we have a super unclear situation. Uh, it's not clear to me whose side I'm on here, although Orstein has me thinking that I'm leaning more towards Apple on this. But what's interesting is in particular, Orstein is focusing on the burden to Apple and the, like the demand that would be placed that Apple just needs to keep doing whatever the FBI wants going forward, as opposed to this being a big mass surveillance slash, you know, consumer protection kind of thing, which is, I think in an interesting way for him to lean on it. But yeah, I guess we're going to see some precedent set. We don't know what the heck it's going to be. But I guess the good news is it's happening in a public court rather than a private one. Definitely. Um, and so we'll be able to see something come out of this and hopefully Congress can react to it. Yeah, and I think if there's one key point that we could leave you all with from this episode is that this is... Oh, really- I have like five more, so... Okay, so if there's like six key points, we could like six key points. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this is a really complicated issue, right? One that could have extraordinarily broad implications, but it might not. We're not sure because there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, revolving around the case, even to the experts who cover this sort of stuff every day. So what was interesting to us, and maybe this could be a reconsider point, is that. What we found when researching this episode is that while this uncertainty um, is really in our minds one of the, the cruxes of, of, of understanding this issue is that a lot of story, sources that are covering it right now actually cover it from a position of certainty. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I saw some stuff that was pro-FBI and said, no, straightforward, simple. It's ridiculous that Apple's fighting this. They're just doing it for marketing purposes. And I've seen stuff. I've seen stuff that says, quote, you know, this is a case where nobody has access or everyone does um, or everyone has security or nobody does. I don't find that particularly compelling here. I think the idea that this somehow automatically becomes a huge backdoor for everyone that bad people can get access to your phone. I do not find that compelling from the case I see or from the facts I see. What I find more interesting is the burden on Apple and the ongoing precedent of, are we going to have a case where companies have to keep making this code going forward, not just from a financial burden perspective, but from a, but from a perspective of like getting a leash, a collar and leash put on you by the government such that you have to sort of jump when they say so and 
write the stuff that they want to be able to break into things. And, you know, earlier we talked about the possibility of Apple writing the security feature onto read-only memory. So it's just plain can't be updated. And one of the things I think is interesting is, you know, sort of regardless of how this goes, if I was Apple, I would want to do that. But if this case goes in favor of the FBI, will they even be allowed to? Would it be a form of contempt of Congress even, given that it's from the All Writs Act, to try to circumvent this once it's been made clear that they have to help out in this way? If they say, oh, we've now written it such that it's impossible, ha, ha, you know, can they get in trouble for that? And I think that's the, I think that's the really interesting thing that is at stake is how much to what extent are technology and other companies going to become burdened to be foot soldiers of the state in its investigations and its security proceedings? Yeah. I think what was, what was really exciting to both, to both me and Eric when, when we were doing the work for this show is we both had moments where we kind of went, huh, that, that is a really interesting point in, in, in response to positions that maybe we didn't or we wouldn't have expected ourselves to typically agree with. It is, it's complicated enough and there, there is enough reading done that both of our preconceptions were at one point or another challenged. And that's, that's always, for me, those are, those are nice moments because it means that there is more to learn and that you can approach issues in new perspectives if you're open to it. Yeah, I definitely same thing for me. Started out feeling pretty black and white, ended feeling not at all so black and white. And so we'll we'll stay appraised of this and keep you updated on what on what's going on from the blog somewhere. And hope you guys learned as much as we did from this. We had a lot of fun from it. You know, and as you're walking out, just think about, you know, has this episode caused you to reconsider and why? Did you start off on one side or the other? Did you come out thinking something different? And, you know, hopefully what you'll be doing is in the future is you're reading the kind of stuff for these issues that state something with certainty. Hopefully episodes like this will make you think like, hmm, maybe there's more out there that I haven't seen yet. And even if you don't take the time to run around and do the research, you can at least start thinking, you know what, I bet that there's something complicated going on here and I'm not just going to buy into what I'm being told at the first time. Uh, and if you have thoughts about this, I mean, especially since there's so much that still after our research, we don't know about the situation. If you have some opinions that came out that are different from ours, let us know. Uh, we can be found on Twitter at ReconsiderPod. Uh, Facebook, same thing, ReconsiderPod. And at somethingtoconsidermovement.com slash reconsider. So if you got other ideas for shows as well, let us know. We've got a few queued up, but we'll interrupt if there's enough demand. And that's it from me. This is Eric signing off. Talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. This is Xander signing off. And remember, don't let the pundits think for you. Pause and reconsider. Have a good week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.